0: Hey, I'm David Crabtree, lead pastor at Calvary Church. Welcome to our podcast. I hope you'll find something every week that inspires you to dig deeply into God's word and reach for the unmet potentials that lie within you. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and never miss an update. Hope you enjoy the message. All right, tonight we get to turn to the 11th chapter of Judges and we deal with Jephthah. Say Jephthah, just so you know who we're dealing with tonight. We start in the 11th chapter, and we're going to be dealing with some uh, vast sections of text. I don't have time to go into every verse. We would be here until October. We're probably on track right now for a September finish. So uh, I just want to, uh, we're going to be moving through some, we're going to be moving through some text tonight, starting in verse one. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. There's a shocker. Kind of slaps you in the face, doesn't it? Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. This is not unlike, by the way, Abimelech, who we dealt with uh, just last week. Actually, the week before, we got into his parentage, where he was treated as somewhat illegitimate. Although it was a different standard, his mother was a concubine of his father. This is this is a lower level altogether. Uh, he's the son of a prostitute with his father. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That's why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them, and Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Understand, just setting the stage again. This is a narrative, this is a narrative text in the Old Testament that tells us the story of, uh, of these judges with full understanding that not all of them were godly. As a matter of fact, they're in a downward spiral. So we are reaching the bottom of the barrel as far as the moral nature of the judges that we're going to be dealing with. Jephthah and Gideon were at the very bottom of the barrel. Or Jephthah Jephthah and Samson. We're moving down uh, into that region now. But the nation of Israel is in desperate trouble and uh, what has been happening up to this point is when the people would cry out to the Lord, the Lord would raise up a deliverer. So we've been through what, seven, eight judges now, and the Lord raises up a deliverer and the people are good for 20 years and that judge dies and the people go right back into the same sinful spiral and God, God allows the enemy then to be able to really uh, bring the pressure on them and what do they do? They cry out to the Lord and as they cry out to the Lord, he, he sends them another judge, another deliverer. But we see with every judge that there's a downward spiral in the uh, In the spiritual life of Israel, and so the people rejoice they 've been delivered, and the next judge or the, the, that judge dies. the people go right back to their old sinful ways, worshiping idols and whatnot and god says i 'm losing my patience with you, but they cry out to God in their trouble, and we see it over and over again. Well, when we reach Jephthah, this point of deliverance does not come, and this is unique it doesn 't come because the people cried out to the Lord now there 's There's no history in this story of Jephthah of the people saying, wow, we're really in a mess. We better cry out to God. They go looking for a deliverer. Now, God will use Jephthah, but this story is not about God raising up a particular man in answer to prayer. Whatever God will do along these lines, he's doing for the sake of preserving his people. So all that to say, we have reached a lower level than we've ever reached in the moral, spiritual life of Israel. They're scraping the bottom of the barrel. So here's what's happening. In the region of Gilead, remember also, whenever we're talking about these regions and we're talking about these cities and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites, and we talk then uh, about the um, We'll talk some about the Assyrians and then the Syrians and we talk about Israel. When we're talking about these nations, they are not separated by a 1,000 miles, 2,000 miles and an ocean. When we're talking about the Ammonites tonight and Israel, we're talking about a distance at places their borders come together. We're talking about a distance of 30 miles to 45 miles. So the Ammonites live just on the other side of Winston-Salem. You have to think in those terms. Think what Israel lives with right now as far as danger is concerned. Imagine if you had somebody who lived in Kernersville who was intent to, to lob missiles over into your backyard. That's the way they live. That whole conflict, and that, the close proximity. Those of you who have been to Israel with us know the thing that blows you away is how close everything is to everything else. And one day on the bus, you can hit half of the Bible, it seems. (laughs) You pop from place to place to place, and it all comes alive to you, and you realize, man, that was right there. I stood on the top of Mount Carmel, just stood there and said, okay, Nazareth. Um, Okay, Deborah up on Mount Tabor right over there. Oh, that's, that's... yeah, that's where Saul was killed, right over on that. Oh, this valley, this is where, this is where the chariots rolled and, and uh, Elijah ran in front of the cha- Oh, Jezreel, well, that's right over there. And Ahab and Jezebel, that mound over there, that's where that all took place. Plus, here I am standing on Mount Carmel where the fire fell with Elijah. So every place is really compact. And when we're talking about these regions and we're talking about these <coughs> nations, we are talking in a sense about city kingdoms, that are not separated by that many miles. And so keep that in mind. Gilead is, Gilead is a northwestern region in Israel. And that's where the story is concentrated this time. Remember what happens with, with the judges. All through these dozen or so judges, they're popping up at different places in the nation. Because everything would go along rather copacetic for a while, but then some place would become a hot zone, there would come an attack, and God, to preserve his people, would raise up a deliverer over here. And then it was up here, and then it was off to the side here. Now we're up in Gilead, so we're up, and in a minute we'll go to some maps, but we're up in the, we're up in the northeast, more of the northeast corner, and uh, Ammon now becomes the, becomes the villain, so the years are going by, the judges are passing. You know, before long we're going to be out of the judges. That whole era in the Scripture altogether. But as the years pass by, different villains rise up at different times. Our villain uh, is going to be the Ammonites tonight. The Ammonites dwell east of the Jordan River, and uh, we'll again we'll we'll go. Have we got a map loaded up next? Because I'm I'm talking about these things. It might be able. It might be good. There. Yeah. Okay. So, and I brought my handy dandy pointer tonight, so see if I don't hurt myself. So whenever you're, when, whenever you're remembering the geography of, when you're trying to remember the geography of the Holy Land, the Dead Sea, that you can see that on any map, you pick it out really quick. Dead Sea, Jordan River, and up north of my pointer here, you'll get into Galilee. Gilead, the land of Gilead is right over here in the northeast corner if we were going to jerusalem we'd come off of the dead sea to jericho and we'd go right up through this cut ephraim and benjamin and it's really it's right over about here so if if we were going to jerusalem it would be here if we were going up to galilee it would be well up here to the north but everything works off of the jordan today the west bank you hear a lot about the west bank in israel this is the west bank right here all of this area it's heavily Palestinian, but also there are then all kinds of, of Israeli settlements that have been moved, and that's why it's such a hot zone most of the time. And I'm not speaking to the right and wrong of that. That's simply the truth of the matter because you've got, you've got Israel that's still putting settlements in here, and you've got basically Palestinians living in here in mass. also. The West Bank is, is always a hot zone. Over here on the East Bank, Once you pass the east bank, you are in Jordan today. But back then, the nation of Gad had this, kind of this center section, Reuben was down here. But here's Ammon, we're gonna be dealing with him tonight. Here's Ammon, we'll talk about some of these other areas also. But this is the problem area, and they are going to have conflict with, the the Jews are going to gather, they're gonna come from this side over to a place called Mizpah. We can't be absolutely certain, but this is as close as we can get to know where it was. These people in, the, the Israelites are all going to coalesce here in Mizpah, and this is where the battle is going to take place, just so you get kind of an understanding of, of the geography of where we're going to be. By the way, uh, the nation that was known as Ammon, their, um, their capital city in modern-day Jordan Jordan is, what's the capital of Jordan? Amman. A M N A A M M A N. Now, if... if you really want to spell it correctly, it's A-M-M. That's the modern spelling, the old spelling, A-M-M-O-M, because Ammon Jordan is named after the Ammonites. And so it, it's, an, it's important to, to understand that. And when you study your Bible, Ammon is the son of, uh, actually illegitimate son of Lot. You remember what happened with Lot after the, after the um, Sodom and Gomorrah is burned to the ground? Lot is, uh, takes off and uh, flees and God delivers him and his two daughters with him but they're pretty much exiled and they're alone because God's destroyed everything else. And up in the mountains the two girls say we're not ever going to have children we're not ever going to marry we're going to be living out here with the old man forever we need, to have, we need to have sons to take care of us in our old age and so they get the old man drunk and it's a, it's a story of incest. They get the old man drunk and they both get pregnant and one one of the children that came out of that of that incestuous union was moab who was the other one ammon so that's the history behind these nations the roots behind these behind these nations and also this is one of the greatest arguments in history for um, not getting drunk <laughs> So, you know be not drunk where with wine where is in excess but also remember moab and ammon okay just a, just a side lesson there these nations by the way moab and ammon these nations were historically historically they were idolatrous and they were a complete thorn in the side for israel always uh, we were able to dig around in the dirt and find out an awful lot about Ammon. And one of the things we've discovered about him is he collects gods, he's, uh, he's polytheistic, and Ammon. Ammon will worship anything, and his descendants will worship anything. And he's got gods, he, you know, we've got, as we dig up in the archaeology, he's got gods that he imported from uh, Egypt and worshiped gods from Egypt. And the, he's got gods named Bes and Gula and Milcom and Nasku and Marduk and Nabu. And all of these gods are part of either Egyptian. Uh, you know, Egyptian history, or they're gods that have been adopted from the northern, what we call the Mesopotamian region, later no, became known as the Babylonian region. And so Ammon doesn't connect at all with um, Lot's God, Abraham's God. He's abandoned that completely. He worships now multiplied gods, whichever God he thinks is going to get him the best deal. He worships, he worships multiple gods. And so Ammon is, is very much, in all of history, very much an idolatrous, polytheistic uh, people. For years, by the way, historians cast massive doubts on the veracity of Scripture about the Ammonites. When I was in Bible college, uh, whether or not the Ammonites really existed like the Bible said, they was, it was one of those things that was debated by liberal, by liberal scholars and, and liberal theologians. Recent archaeological finds have have been vindicated, uh, or I should say, have vindicated the Scripture. And one of them, one of them happened just last year. A massive statue of an Ammonite king was discovered when repairs were being made to in, in Ammon, uh, Repairs were being made to a massive Roman amphitheater. You know, the Romans left amphitheaters everywhere they went, and they're and they're massive and they're beautiful and they're enduring but they do have their problems as they're breaking down over time and they needed to do some foundational work on the Roman amphitheater that was beginning to crumble somewhat in Amman. So they started digging around and uh, this is what they, dig, they they dug up. This guy right here, this, this pillar, this carved pillar, see the hand there? And actually there's little feet, but you see the hand there and, uh, and there's a face. We're facing kind of in the, in the other direction, but this was in the fill this was in the fill dirt beneath the, so what the Romans did is they came in and they leveled everything and crum, you know, just, just uh, broke down everything and on, the, on that uh, fill, then they built their amphitheater and they built their city. So while they were trying to repair some of these things, they came across this guy. Here he is all cleaned up, by the way, this next shot. Yeah, fine looking, isn't he? You just kind of get an idea there that he's you know, kind of upset about something. But uh, now this pillar, this is uh, about seven feet tall, so it's it's a massive pillar, and it, it would have been. A, this is this is uh, the importance. The importance of this guy is we know there's an inscription, and the inscription on this this piece of stone uh, references an Ammonite king that is only known in the Bible and the time is they've been able to date it the time is absolutely perfect with the biblical timeline i love it when that type of thing happens and uh, everything just kind of falls together but the boundaries and the and the borders of these nations were constantly constantly in flux but the, the maps really give us a, a general idea so you've got this one i showed you a moment ago let's roll to the next map so i kind of like this one for what we're going to be talking about as we get into the text here this is, um, this is probably a better uh, illustration of exactly how everything uh, was aligned in the days of the judges. Edom down here to the south, if you've ever read in the script, what's the, what's the big deal about Edom? Whenever Israel would get into a fight with Edom, it was this southern kingdom down here, and again, there were, there were relationships there that go back through history in the Bible, then Moab, then Ammon, then up here in Damascus and Syria. Um, this is the Sea of Galilee, so you get an idea as to where all of this is. Damascus is right there. The Golan Heights are right over in here. Those of you who are in Israel with us, remember when we went up on the Golan Heights? We had a teaching session up there looking right over into Syria, hearing that was when the bombings were taking place in Syria. We could hear the bombs falling 60 miles away in, in Damascus. So this is, in the time of the judges, this is how the kingdoms were, were aligned. It's important that you understand that when you start reading about where they went and what they did and how they fought in the battles that were, were won. So anyways, I wanted to put this up. And here, there's Jerusalem and this Rabbath Ammon, that is modern day Ammon. And so you know how far that is? 45 miles. Just four, I mean, it's, it's nothing. They're so, so very close. This is Jephthah's world. Uh, it seems that Jephthah was quite a fighter, a warrior. You know, if you start your life in, um, with a lowly birth and uh, people treat you as though you're a second class, third class, or even no class citizen, uh, that'll make you a fighter. That'll make you a fighter. For whatever, maybe that was the reason. He was, he was a fighter from an early age. And as he grew up and people could see the natural abilities and talents that he had as a leader, the sons of Gilead realized that he was going to be a problem for them with their inheritance. And so he got the elders all together and they ran him off. So they send him north into a place called, if you back up on one of those maps, they sent him right up here. Am I close? Oh, I missed it. It's right in about here. I'm close. This would be where where Tob, as best we can know, it was somewhere over in here. And so they exile exile him north up in here from Gilead, which is down in here. He's living up here. So they've got rid of him. They kind of marched him off the map and said, you go do your thing, leave us alone. You don't have an inheritance here. We read that just a moment ago. And so he's up in Syria. And we can be sure they were concerned about this wily, strong, cagey, half-brother, rising up uh, in exile. So they probably kept their eye on him. While in exile, the Bible tells us he attracted his own goon squad. The Bible says that, you know, some, what did it, what did the text actually, the text said that, And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Not sure exactly what the author was driving at there, but he just surra- He was a bad boy and he surrounded himself with a bunch of bad boys. What, what's probably happening here, we can't be absolutely sure, but what's probably happening here is he becomes somewhat of his own tribe a raiding tribe, and that, that's what would happen in those days. If you're thrown into exile, you've got no way to make money, you're cut off from your family, what do you do? Well, if you're, if you're a strong man, you go out and you rob and you pillage the countryside and you take, what, you take what you want. Don't get terribly upset for me to throw this in, but King David kind of did the same thing when Saul threw him out. He had about 400 men who all came to him and said, we're fed up with Saul also, and they became kind of their own Their own tribe, for a period of time, their their own tribe, it was very common. Jephthah grows a a big reputation. And when the elders of Gilead find themselves under threat from the Ammonites, they in effect recall their exiled half-brother and they ask him to be their leader. There is, and this is really important, there is in this whole thing no mention of them seeking the Lord at all. None at all. No mention of the Lord whatsoever. The elders of Gilead now are taking matters into their own hands. So God's involvement in this whole story comes only as God is working to preserve his people. He hasn't been asked. The people haven't repented. But Israel's in trouble. Israel's under threat. And because God has a plan for Israel that he was working out, he preserves them. And Jephthah is raised up by his brothers. They bring him back, taking matters into their own hand. And nothing's hidden in the text about their negotiations. It started on one level. It quickly uh, climbed to another level altogether. The Hebrew helps us here. They wanted him to be their leader. And you read that in the English Bible, read leader, and you don't get the full gist of it. They wanted him to be their katzim, their military commander, or we would say Their captain. They wanted him to be their fighting general. So you go out and you win the battle. That's what we want you to do. That's where the negotiation started. He would lead them into battle. However, their previous treatment of him put him in a a very bad bargaining position. And he wouldn't settle for this temporary post of, of a general. He was going to be their leader Different. Hebrew word, Rosh, which speaks to head. He was going to be the overall leader. He would not be captain. He was going to be head. He took the negotiations to a whole new level. And that was the ultimate decision. The elders said, we, we better do the deal. The Ammonites are going to wipe us out. And Jephthah is our only hope. So, okay, if he wins, it's winner take all he becomes our leader. Can you imagine how tough that was to swallow for the sons of Gilead? Of course, then again, every once in a while, you get yourself in a situation that that, that is bad enough. It's amazing how good the bad boy looks. Let me put it this way. Have any of you ever wished that you just had kind of a a bent uncle? (laughs) I've been cut off in traffic before and wish I had a big bad uncle. You know, somebody just to go take care of for me. You'd be, you'd be surprised. You get, in, you, you get your backs against the wall, and somebody says, well, I'm going to come and help you. You may not have liked them. All of a sudden, they just look like an angel from heaven. And I think the sons of Gilead, their backs were against the wall, and they said, your, your inheritance really doesn't matter, boys, because if Ammon takes over, they're, you're going to steal everything you've got. And in that moment, they thought, well, Jephthah, you know, he, he, really, he, he really is a good guy. We probably should have kept him around. And so Jephthah, Jephthah makes this an arrangement with them. And in the 11th verse that we just read, we see this. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. This seems to be a quasi-religious uh, ratification of the agreement. And the Jews were great for this thing. When they would agree on something, they would gather together and they would make their, their covenant, they would, they would bring something into play that would make that covenant before the Lord. They'd bring, they'd bring a little religion into their covenant. Can you imagine if you went to buy a house and before you could sign on the line? All the people around the table said, now we need to pray and make a covenant here. Any, any legal dealings that you had well, that all sounds good and we'll sell you the house, but that all sounds, that all sounds great and that's the way we're gonna move forward in this organization. But first, we need to make this covenant. We need to seal this covenant before, before God. This was very much a Jewish way of doing business. And so Jephthah, it doesn't mean that Jephthah was a, a man with a deep devotional life who said, I really, I really love the Lord and I really want his blessings on our endeavor. Now, Jephthah was just carrying through The process with the children of Israel, when they had made this type of decision, they would make covenant together. And so he spoke these words before the Lord at Mizpah. So this is a ratification of the agreement. But here there are hints of irregularity. First of all, usually when any of these ratifications took place on a national level, they would go to a place that was recognized as a sanctuary site. A place with an altar. Remember, at this point, Israel does not have a temple. They don't have a king. But they would go to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. They would go to, you know, the place of Eli. They would go to places, like, or they would go to Bethel. They would go, they would go to some place that had covenant altar meaning before God. And that doesn't happen here. Mizpah has, Mizpah has, has no roots in, in this type of thing at all so Jephthah appears to be a man-made judge he definitely doesn't come by the appointment of God remember Gideon God goes and finds Gideon at the threshing floor right he goes and he finds him and the angel says to him mighty man of valor and you remember Gideon's great response who me you know I'm I'm the least of the tribes remember God's searching out his deliverer there not here Jephthah seems to be a man-made judge rather than a divinely called one. Furthermore, according to his agreement with the elders, his appointment head over all in the, inhabit- the inhabitants of Gilead. This was conditional on the success he would have against the Ammonites. So understand this, the deal wasn't done until he brought home the bacon. If he didn't win, it, it, it didn't matter, but if, if he, the, the idea wasn't, Okay, we're making you our leader right now. It was a contingency deal. You win, you're leader. So his appointment to that office is no more than provisional at this stage. He already has popular support, provisional endorsement, but in reality, he only gets what he really wanted if he wins the war. Now, we have to talk about Jephthah's faith. What did Jephthah believe? Jephthah certainly had a general faith that the God of Israel would fight for the God of israel would fight for Israel now, before you run too far with that, Jephthah probably also felt that the gods of Moab would fight for Moab and the gods of Ammon would fight for Ammon. All of these people had faith they had faith in their gods, their national gods for the Jews, it was the one true God, but for all of these other nations, they had pantheons of gods, and they believed that those gods would fight whenever, whenever nations would go to war. When the war was won, ultimately, it was not just a victory for the nation; it became a big victory for whoever's god, you know, was was on the winning side. And then they'd say, "Well, it was because of Baal that we won," or "It was because of Moloch that we won," or "It was because of Nabal that we won." They would, they would. You know, go back and forth along these lines. So when we say that Jephthah believed that the God of Israel would tip the battle, he was probably very sincere in that belief. It doesn't indicate that he was a that he was a a, a heart believer, but definitely believed in. He, he probably believed in gods. Most of Israel, by the way, at this point was so idolatrous they believed in gods and had to get pulled back time and time again to the one true God, and so as much as what we can say about Jephthah's faith is he's not, uh, he's not an evangelical, okay? Probably not gonna vote Republican. <laughs> I just threw that out there just to see if you'd bite. Most, most Middle Eastern cultures believe that the nation's God turned the events of war for good or for evil. He recognizes that the odds against him are massive, and so as far as Jephthah believing, later on we find in Hebrews that he is recognized for his faith. He had faith that as he did what he was going to do to, to um, bring release to the children of Israel, he believed that God would be on his side. He really did. That's why he's recognized for his faith. We'll speak more about that more about that later. Suffice it to say he's convinced that victory will come And if it comes, it will come because the God of the children of Israel helps or it won't come at all. So Jephthah is now the head, provisional head. We find, too, that he has a pretty good mind and a grasp of the regional history as we look now at the dialogue that takes place, kind of a pre-battle negotiation. I think something different's happening here, and I'll touch on it on the on the way. But he sends in verse 12 and following. He sends an emissary to Ammon in an attempt, uh, in an attempted mission of diplomacy. That happens all the time, doesn't it? We have problems around the world. What what does the president do? He dispatches. He first he'll send his ambassador. But if he needs to send somebody bigger, he'll send the Secretary of State, or maybe he sends the Vice President. But he's going to send somebody and try and set up negotiations, and then get the politicians out of the way, send the professional negotiators in, and try and defuse this thing. Um, Jephthah does the same. So here we find it in the 11th chapter, verse 12 and following. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he said, What do you have against me uh, that you have come to fight uh, against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, whoa, 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 wait a minute. This is 300 years after the children of Israel came up from Egypt. So Jephthah says, why are you harassing me now? And the king of Ammon says, this is an old, old story. It's an old, old story. One thing that you'll learn about um, the American culture is compared to, to most other cultures in the world, we don't have a long memory. Uh, we're kind of short attention span theater on the, on the world stage. In some cultures of the world, their memories, because of their oral traditions that are passed down generation after generation after generation and generally, with a commonality of religion, not a pluralistic religious system, but a commonality of religion, they have they have memory that goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So Jephthah, he's, uh, he's in the moment. He's saying, you know, brand new day here, guys. What's going on? Why are you attacking us? And the king of Ammon goes, He goes there. He goes all the way back to Egypt. When Israel came up from Egypt, they took away my land. He wasn't even alive. But they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. In other words, Jephthah, we can work this out. You're just all going to get off the east bank of the Jordan and give me all my land back. So that's his negotiation. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, thus says Jephthah. And this is where we see Jephthah is well-versed in his own nation's history. He said, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh, Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Now, Jephthah's diplomatic entreaty is probably nothing more than a stalling technique while he's assembling his army. Because this... this <laughs> Nobody would have imagined that the Ammonites and the Gileadites were going to sort out their problems at a negotiating tent. It just wasn't gonna happen. So what's probably happening here is Jephthah is sending, me- they're sending messengers back and forth. As long as they're talking, they're not fighting, but it gives him time to consolidate his position. In the dialogue, we discover the king of Ammon wants the territories that are conquered 300 years ago Conquered only, by the way, after the Ammonites stood in the way of Israel's entrance into Canaan. Let's just let the Bible tell the story. We'll pick it up at verse 18. Judges 11:18. 18. Then they, the children of Israel, journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon but they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Let's pull the map, and here's, this, this map gives you a, a, a nice little view of it. Israel from Kadesh, the first time they came in, they were going to come up through the wilderness. They were told no. They go back to Kadesh. Then from Kadesh, they come over here saying, let us let, we want to go to the land. All we want from Edom is we want to take what was then known as the King's Highway. It's a ridge route that's straight up through the, the, um, the valley and in through the Dead Sea. The, and it's right there. It's, it's traced out for you. We want to pass through Edom. They said to Edom, will you let us pass through Edom? And what did Edom say? Uh uh-uh. We don't trust you. We don't trust you people. It's all there in the Old Testament. You can read about it another time. They also then, then said to Moab, well, they sent emissaries, we want to pass through Moab. Moab said no. So what did Israel do? They go all the way back down here in the wilderness. Remember all the wanderings in the wilderness? Do you wonder where those were? Here we go. All the, here's the wilderness of Zen. And then not Zen like Buddhism, but here, they come all the way over here. They're turned away at Edom. They go south. And then they come up on the far east side. Just That's exactly how it happened. As we look in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, this is exactly how it happened. And now Jephthah knows his history exactly. He even knows the geography. He knows they marched up the east side, all the way up the east side, couldn't go through Moab, all the way around Moab, and then they came up here. They actually didn't even touch upon Ammon, but they were on the other side of Ammon, and then this is where they enter in, and there's Jericho where it all starts when they invade the land. But this is the route that the children of Israel took when they finally come into the promised land. And it was a problem for Israel, for the rest of history, that Moab and Edom stood in their way. And then Ammon also became a constant threat to them and they eventually, in a, in a war with Ammon, that Ammon insti- instigated, you know, they won all of this territory and they never gave it back. We'll talk about that in a minute too. But that's kind of, that's how it happened. And lo and behold, this, this guy Jephthah is, uh, is telling the story exactly as the Bible tells it. Let's go on to 19 and 20. Israel then sent messengers to Sion. He's telling the history here. They sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said, please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sion did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together, encamped at Jehaz, and fought with Israel. So the way this thing works, as they came up around the outside, they said to Ammon, we've got a route that we want to follow to go through. He said, "Uh, I'm not going to let you take that route and go through my my land, and I'm not going to even let you go a little bit south of me, which is technically not my land. We're going to come fight against you. And so Moab, Edom, and Ammon became enemies of Israel forever at that point. And so you'll find these guys constantly being a source of trouble for Israel. Israel's in conflict with them. They're in conflict with Israel all the time. Verse 21 and following. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all of his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all of the land of the Amorites, who inhabited that country, they took possession of all of the territory of the Ammonites from the Arnon to the Jabbok, that's the east bank of the Jordan now, uh, and the wilderness of Jordan. So land that is present day Jordan, Israel held at this point in time with the tribe of Gad and north of them the tribe of Gilead. That's That's the friction point. Ammon is saying, That is our historical land. We want it back. Jephthah says, "Uh uh-uh. You guys, if you just left us alone, wouldn't have had a problem. But you fought us, and when you fought us, you basically said, we're fighting you for the land. When you lost, you lost the land, and we're not giving it back. 23 and following. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and are you to take possession of them? Now here's, here's Jephthah's big argument. We didn't take your land, God did. It's right there, we just read it. The Lord dispossessed you from the land. You want to blame it on us, but take it up with God. Our God dispossessed the land, and when God, when God dispossesses you from the land and gives it to us, God gave it to us, and we're certainly not going to let you take it away from us. And look at his argument. Look at his argument. It's a secular argument, but I, I like what he does here. He said, Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? In other words, he's saying, You've done the same thing. You've gone out and you've raided villages and you've conquered them. You've conquered cities. You've taken them. You've taken territory. You're going to give them all back now? No. You're going to stand up and say, God gave us, our God, Chemosh, gave us this land. So what does he do? He backs him into a corner with a, a very simple argument. You know, the bottom line is, God either gives victory or God takes it away, and God gave us this land, and you're not taking it from us. I kind of like that. I don't know if you guys think this stuff is cool, but I love this. I have more fun on Wednesday night than anybody who comes to listen to me. <laughs> Let's go on. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Moab. Did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? Yeah. While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aor and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? He said, Moab's been involved in all of this thing and you haven't done anything about that. He says, I therefore, this is Jephthah, I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. And now he pulls the trump card out again. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So Jephthah's whole argument boils down to one of conquest. If Ammon had allowed Israel to pass through, it would have been over. But Ammon refused, assembled themselves for war, and they fought against Israel, and God said, if you're gonna fight against Israel, you are going to fight against me, and you're gonna lose. And when you lose, you're gonna lose everything. Israel won by the hand of God, God gave them the land, they didn't take it, this is the argument of Jephthah. The land they occupied was fairly won in war, and a war that they did not provoke and so they won't give it back. Do you know who thinks like that to this very day? Israel. Israel. The rest of us go to the negotiating table. Is Israel giving back the Golan Heights? No. When did they win it? 1967 in the Six Day War. A war, You know they, they, again and again and again, Israel is attacked, and when Israel's attacked, Israel fights. Have you seen that historically? And they fight, they'll fight to the death and they'll fight to the last man. And when they win, what they take, they keep. Now they have given back the Suez. (laughs) At one time, it wasn't that long ago, back until 1982, Israel controlled everything down to the Suez Canal, for pity's sake. They took it all, they held it all from 67 to 82 before little by little negotiating some of that back. But as far as the Golan Heights, because of Syria and because of Jordan up to the north, the Golan Heights are the perfect place to put artillery and lob anything you want to lob over into Israel from the high ground. And they said, we're never giving up this high ground again. And so they're saying, God gave it to us. We're not giving it back. And so this goes all the way back, this goes all the way back to the judges. There's nothing new under the sun. Those of you who are just you know, I mean, just gobsmacked about Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. There's nothing new out there, John, Donald Trump and, and the Supreme Court. There is nothing new out there. There is nothing new. And those of you who just can't wait to get up in the morning and check for the latest, the latest and greatest worst and, and most disastrous on your phone, there's nothing new. It's all happened before. The, the, the more I look at, at history, the more I realize. That the Lord has us here for a period of time to accomplish His purpose, and we've run out of original ideas. Don't get me going on Bernie. I, I felt it coming. I just don't don't get me don't get me. I'd, I'd love to I'd love to just take Bernie to Cuba with me. I'd love for him to see a socialist paradise. After 15 years of going in and out of Russia, I want to. Tell you, I'd love to take. I would love to take Bernie not to Moscow, I'd love to take Bernie back into Siberia, into Russia in the cities that we used to go into. I'd love to just say, here it is. Yeah, enough, enough. That's far more political than I ever get. So I, I, I don't, I don't get it. Anyways, Jephthah's question, should we give back what God has given us? Yeah, it's just a fast, a question that's fascinating in our, what if, what if, in the world today, what if we did decide we're all gonna give it all back? Where would we start? Where would it end? What would we give back? Well, we'd need to give the United States back to the British. I don't know about you, but those Limies can't have any of this. I'm teasing. What's that? well and then yeah and then we and then they give it back to the then well they and the french you know those guys kind of slip under the radar uh those in the and the french they they need to give it back to to uh native americans i mean we've got a lot of work to do we've got can you imagine can you imagine how busy we'd be in south america trying to sort out that soup (laughs) we got to go back and and you know we got to get the aztecs and incas all straightened out and um, it was just rather difficult seeing as they vanished from the face of the earth so you know who do we give it to who do we get we send them all home can you imagine portugal if we started shipping them all home just saying you know anybody that's got any of that conquistador blood they're going back to spain and they're going back to they're going back can you where do you start and yet there is this sense of you know 300 years later we can straighten out what happened 300 years ago it's it's difficult it's difficult And so the whole argument, the whole argument here with Ammon, it just, it it was an impossibility. It wasn't going to happen. And I think, I think that Jephthah, I think he was pretty happy about having the back and forth dialogue because it gave him more time to be organized. So when Moab was defeated, she took her losses and. You know, for 300 years after that, the land lay in peace because they knew they didn't, they attacked Israel. They had no claim then to the land that Israel had taken because they they attacked, they lost, they gave up the land. You know, it all comes down to this the Lord be a judge between you and me. So Jephthah says, in other words, we're going to war and we'll see. So now the die is cast. Here's the fascinating little verse that pops out of this that is often ignored by people. And the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Actually, the best translate the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Up until this point, Jephthah is a mercenary, exiled son who's been brought back to be a man-made deliverer. But Israel is in trouble, and God says, okay, Jephthah, stood up to the Ammonite king and said, God's gonna straighten this thing out. And God said, I'm gonna honor that faith. And now the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. This is the first indication of God's presence in the entire story. It's been a human endeavor up until this point. But God is going to protect his people according to his promise. And given the dangers of the enemy and the availability of Jephthah, the spirit comes upon him on occasion as the spirit will do also with Samson. The spirit will come upon him at times and he'll he will he'll do exploits. So that same idea. And we leave the story tonight with Jephthah as he's basically riding through. We're given a list of the places. It says, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He passed through Gilead and Manasseh, pressed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. We get this idea. So if you're making a film You've got some music going in the background and you've got Jephthah on the big white horse and he's riding, he's riding through Manasseh and he's riding through the next community and he's riding through the next community. And, and man, I mean, the music's getting bigger and bigger and he's seeming stronger and stronger and stronger because what you have right here in the literature is you've got, when the spirit of God comes upon him, all of a sudden he's riding straight into the teeth of the Ammonites. He's going, he's going straight into, straight into battle. This leaves us with the picture of an advancing storm, but he's he's advancing in the power of God. The outcome is already determined, but Jephthah makes a very rash vow, which again, clues us in on the fact that this guy had a very limited knowledge of God's moral heart. He had a very limited knowledge. While he knew the history of Israel and geography and conquest and battles and all of that, he had a very limited understanding of what God had said it was right and what was wrong in the law. And he makes a foolish vow. And next week, we'll pick up Jephthah's vow. Jephthah's vow. Okay. Well, we're done. Anybody damaged by this tonight? Sorry about the Bernie comment. I'd try and throw something in there for Trump, too, but my mind's blank right now.